Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, and thank you for listening to the DNS podcast. Our topic for today's episode is critical care nutrition. My guest is registered dietitian nutritionist, Britta Brown. Britta is a clinical dietitian at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She works in the medical intensive care and general medicine units and has a particular interest in the management of obesity, renal, oncology, and hepatic conditions. She also places bedside feeding tubes, is an active advocate for biomedical ethics and the provision of nutrition support and end-of-life care, has won numerous awards for quite simply being a fabulous registered dietitian, and is currently the chair-elect for DNS-DPG. Britta, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks, Christina. I appreciate this opportunity. So before we jump into our content questions, I'd really love to hear what initially led you to focus your energy on the critical care population? Well, I wish I had a really unique answer to your question, but um, I'm originally from Montana and I went to school in Minnesota and I was lucky enough to um, do my internship at a large teaching hospital in Boston. And as you can imagine, going from a more urban to a more urban area with, you know, a thousand bed hospital and four separate adult ICUs, I really had my eyes open to what was out there that I wasn't previously able to see in smaller community hospitals. A couple things really stood out to me. I think the fast-paced nature of the ICU environment appealed to me, the continuous learning that goes on um, if you choose to work in that environment. And then I was really impressed with the teamwork aspect of things um, as it pertained to um, you know, physicians, nurses, physical therapists, dietitians, pharmacists, the whole team really working together for common goals. So it was a variety of things that really drew me to that population but I really appreciated having that opportunity in my internship to go to a really large academic medical center and just be exposed to all the different types of ICU care that's out there. So not a unique answer, but that's kind of the path that led me in this direction. Well, I think that's a common path for a lot of dietitians where, you know, thankfully in our internships, we get exposed to so many different areas related to food and nutrition. And then we can really hone in on the areas that we find of greatest interest or that, we, you know, we enjoy working in and we're good at, right? Like we find where our skill lies during that experience. Yep, absolutely. 
So it, you, you were recently a presenter at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo. And thank you for that because your presentation was just really terrific. Um, and you and the speakers reviewed a variety of case types. So different types of patients that may, you know, or typically present in the ICU. And I think that that's a really great depiction of the quote unquote day in the life of an ICU dietitian who often manages a wide variety of patient types each and every day. Sure. So when you are working on the ICU, where do you personally start when you're assessing a new patient? I would say I follow a pretty traditional approach, you know, really doing a careful chart review and a lot of the things that are readily available in the electronic medical record, which I have to say for those of you who are young and never had to deal with paper charts, that's been just such a blessing over the last 15 years to not have to deal with that anymore. But really, um, you know, looking at the anthropometrics, the medications, the history, et cetera. And, you know, historically, that's kind of where dietitians spent most of their time. And I've found that while all of that is important in getting kind of a baseline picture of what's going on with the patient, you cannot beat going up to the patient and, you know, following up with that physical assessment, talking to family members if they're available, being present on rounds with the physicians. I've found as I've gotten older, um, the way to really get to it and get things done is to have the dietitian actively up there interacting with everyone on the healthcare team, the patient, if they're able to participate, family members, and really laying eyes and hands on the situation, as it were. Um, that's when you make those connections with people and get things done. So. Um, that's kind of, I guess I would say my augmented approach. It's very traditional compared to what we were all taught, but I do think with um, experience, I've really learned that um, you need to take it to that next step and be present. And that's where you get a lot of information that you might not otherwise glean just from looking at the electronic medical record. So talk to us a little bit about when you're in the patient's room interacting with either the patient or their family at the bedside, what is your approach to finding out their medical history when perhaps they're on a mechanical ventilator and they can't tell you, or the family is, you know, very upset for obvious reasons. So how, how do you get the information that you need to proceed with your assessment? Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, I start off by just keeping it simple and then um, go a little bit further as I'm able. So if someone's extremely distraught, family members and things like that, you know, our first interaction might be fairly limited and it might be a little bit more based on introductions and why we're starting nutrition support and how that might help their loved one during their recovery process. But I've actually found that a lot of family members are appreciative of being able to talk to us. And sometimes, you know, as we've all probably experienced, even the little bit um, that we can talk about nutrition leads them to thinking about food or meals or happier memories, which can often just kind of open things up. And sometimes they just want to talk. And, um, 
the conversation kind of flows organically. But absolutely, there will be other times where it's just not the time and the place. And I think you establish that rapport maybe at the first visit and just know that you're going to keep following up and hopefully get more of the picture as time goes on. Another thing that um, I've discovered over the years is oftentimes family members um, will be present when we're placing feeding tubes and depending on how quickly or not quickly that process goes we might have quite a while to chat with uh, family members or visitors while we're placing that feeding tube and that can be um, an easy way to get information as well without it seeming too structured. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the feeding tube issue because I know that you're one of a relatively small group of dietitians across the country who insert nasoenteric feeding tubes. So how did you get started with this advanced practice skill? At our facility, we had recognized that we were having some issues getting tubes placed in a timely manner. Um, and so as dietitians, we were, you know, obviously concerned about that because we were probably sending more patients to fluoroscopy to have tubes placed than was absolutely necessary. Um, we did have a few safety concerns that had come up over the years with inadvertent placements. Um, and so it was a kind of a combination of factors between safety, efficiency, and um, being able to get our patients fed in a timely manner that really kind of started piquing our interest as um, dietitians in the nutrition department. And of course, you know, we were all familiar with the work of Gail Cresci and Beth Taylor, the real early pioneers in this practice. Um, so we had a group in our staff that was very eager to take this on, but we really we really had to take it to the next level and make sure that we had stakeholders who would support this from our institution and that it really made sense. So from my perspective, it's not just enough that dietitians want to do the tubes. It has to make sense for your facility. And it turned out by um, developing a staffing matrix um, with dietitians and nursing, we were able to train a smaller group of um, tube placers who got much more efficient and proficient at getting these tubes in quickly and safely. And we were able to get better outcomes for our patients, cut down on number of x-rays, things of that nature. And so that's kind of how it evolved at our hospital was kind of seeing a need at the institutional level, having staff that was eager to do it, and then working with all the stakeholders um, to kind of come up with a system that would work for everyone. Talk to us a little bit more about the key stakeholders who were involved. You know, I think the obvious ones would be your physicians and nursing colleagues, but what about other folks like in your senior administration or your legal departments? Yeah, absolutely. Before dietitians are embarking on, um, you know, developing this skill and trying to implement it into their practice, you have to check your state licensure uh, regulations. If you are a state with licensure, you need to also get the um, okay from the hospital legal and credentialing body 
to make sure that you can have those clinical privileges and that you'll be covered appropriately under malpractice insurance. So I would say that even if you have all the clinicians on board with you, you do have to do those initial steps first because if you don't have that, you can't go any further. So that would definitely uh, be step one, even though it might seem a bit tedious and boring to cover those bases. And since you've been placing tubes for, you know, quite a few years now, have you noticed any changes in how other healthcare practitioners perceive the dietitians on that team? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, when we first got started, it's a pretty typical response to be like, dietitians, you you place feeding tubes, you know, um, and subsequently we've been doing it for so many years that no one really questions it anymore. And it has definitely um, elevated our, our um, but kind of our visibility, I guess you could say, with other physicians and members of the team. Obviously, the nurses appreciate when we are able to get those tubes in quickly, as do the physicians. So I think it's really just kind of demonstrated the value that we can add to the team and to patient care in a real, um, real tangible way. Um, the other thing that's kind of funny about it, too, is that um, we started placing tubes long before the um, malnutrition criteria came out and the emphasis on doing nutrition-focused physical exams. And so I think that's one area where we, we did things definitely backwards at our hospital, but it made us so much more comfortable doing nutrition-focused physical exams because we'd already been placing feeding tubes for several years. Um, so in that sense, too, um, you know, we didn't get any pushback on implementing the malnutrition criteria because people were very used to us being in those patient rooms and laying hands on people. And I think that that speaks a lot to to you, to your credit and to your team that you were able to build that rapport and that respect by placing feeding tubes. And then that sort of paves, paves the way for other initiatives down the road. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, I agree. It's, um, it's nice to have a group of colleagues that you work with that are um, kind of go-getters and willing to kind of question the status quo and, um, you know, see a problem and really try to get out there and solve it. Um, that's, that's very encouraging to me. And it's really why I've been so happy working where I have for so many years, because it's that great dynamic team environment. So going back to your FINCI presentation, one of my personal takeaways from your talk was to be ready to, to pivot to parental nutrition if enteral nutrition is unsuccessful. So what do you find to be the most challenging element of transitioning a patient from PN to EN? Hands down, I would have to say it's physician beliefs at this time. I think dietitians have almost been our own worst enemies because we've spent so many years touting enteral nutrition and the benefits of enteral nutrition and early uh, feeding that um, I've talked to so many colleagues and I've experienced this myself that physicians can be very reluctant to give up on enteral nutrition and um, might be citing older studies um, 
related to parenteral nutrition where they're very concerned about fungemia and infection risk and things like that. So I think that right now we've got a big challenge ahead of us in actually educating physicians um, that uh, TPN does have a time and a place in patient care and that we can't just keep hoping things get better um, with enteral nutrition if it's clearly not working and our patients are developing cumulative calorie and protein deficits. So that's been the biggest challenge I find is um, just kind of changing hearts and minds on that and just, um, you know, through demonstrations showing that we can safely uh, provide parenteral nutrition to our patients at appropriate dextrose and glucose levels with good electrolyte monitoring, good Lyme care, and um, not cause adverse effects to our patients. So for, for dietitians who are working in the ICU setting, what do you think is the most important thing that they need to know about managing this patient population? You know, I think one of the things that I find to be very, very helpful is to be a curious person and to make sure that you're always asking questions. Because even though I've been doing this for 20 years, I will still run across a condition, a medication, some odd combination of factors that sends me to the literature to look something up and to learn something more. So that's um, one of the things that I think is definitely of utmost importance. And then the other things are kind of more soft skills that I kind of alluded to earlier is I think you absolutely need to be proactive and thinking steps ahead and anticipating what um, your patient's clinical course would be. I know when I first started off, you know, it would be sometimes harder for me to discern whether this person might be on the vent for a couple days and rebound and get extubated or if we were looking at a longer course right from the get-go. So um, trying to kind of hone some of those skills. I think another thing that's really important is um, just being assertive and confident, you know, in what we know as clinicians, in what we can contribute to the team. Um, it's not enough to just sit back and write your notes and hope someone picks it up. You really have to be out there communicating with the team and advocating for your patients since that's our job with respect to nutrition. So those are some of the things that, um, that come to mind. Um, and then everyone else can think of some of the other skills, you know, being organized, detail-oriented, etc. But I do think it's some of those soft skills that uh, might get overlooked that can really be important in being successful. Well, you've clearly demonstrated success in, you know, your own career, both in your, you know, your professional endeavors at work, and then as well as your volunteer experiences. So do you find that, you know, your, your various projects and volunteer opportunities have helped you build your skills in the, in the ICU? Absolutely. Um, my volunteer work over the years has um, been just a tremendous value to me. I appreciate so much being able to network with people all over the country to learn how other healthcare systems handle issues that arise, um, the leadership skills that you glean, and just the um, the mentors that are out there in our field and a lot of the people that have paved the way um, 
for our current level of success and hopefully you know we can continue to keep doing that for the next generations of dietitians so i think if i was just doing um, my regular job it could be somewhat isolating but volunteering has been fabulous and um, i've definitely gotten much more out of it than i've given that's for sure so looking back on, you know, you mentioned 20 or so years in the field, is there anything that you would do differently on your career path? You know, I don't think there's anything that I would do differently um, with respect to my career in nutrition. I've been very, very happy with that. Um, I think if I were to do anything differently, it would have been potentially choosing a different, uh, a different career, maybe when I was in my 20s, but I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not really sure what that would have been. I think one of the challenges for our field, though, is making sure that um, for those of us working in clinical roles that our um, scope of practice and our compensation or salaries keep up with other health professions. I see that as a big concern um, for people in the field and for people choosing whether or not they're going to go into the field. Um, so I would say that would probably be my biggest concern for other people, you know, as they're embarking on their careers. But for myself, I'm very happy with, um, with where I'm at right now. And my last question before we close out this episode. So a lot of what I've heard you talk about is networking, communication, working at the bedside with your patient and your families. So how are you staying connected with everybody during this global pandemic? Oh, absolutely. We did have to work remotely um, for a while at the height of the pandemic in early spring, and that was just awful. I, <laughs> I really hated that. Um, and it really uh, drove home how important it is to be face to face and interacting with people. So thank goodness that was a relatively short lived, um, short lived thing. But as, um, as we all know, as far as volunteering and other um, activities that I'm doing outside of work, Zoom's become my new best friend, and it's a lot of video conference calls and webinars and things like that, but I'm absolutely looking forward to when we can be face-to-face -face again in all different, um, all different realms instead of uh, having to do this distance communication. Um, yesterday, we just had a meeting about the DNS Symposium, which is uh, scheduled for next June of 2021, and we're all just fingers crossed that we can be there and networking and working together in person. Well, that's great. Well, I think that that gives us all something to look forward to next summer. So thank you for that. Absolutely. We're all channeling our positive vibes. Uh, so I think with that, we will go ahead and conclude today's podcast. Britta, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and really for everything that you're doing in the realm of critical care. Thanks, Christina. It was a pleasure chatting with you today. And listeners, to access more information related to this topic, please visit our website at dnsdpg.org and check out the DNS Critical Care Network. I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.